skeletal muscles are the most prevalent in our bodies and what we rely on every day to move. Essentially, an orthotist prosthetist is mitigating forces to enable a person to move. Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, I'm Catherine, your host of this Variety Show podcast. Your positive imprint is transforming how we live today for a more sustainable tomorrow through education and information. Your own positive actions inspire change. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Visit my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, and learn more about the podcast and sign up for email updates. And thank you for listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, well, your favorite podcast platform. Music by the legendary and talented Chris Noll. Check out Chris and his awesome music at chrisnoll.com. C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Thank you again for listening and for your support of this podcast. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? There is an estimated 30 million people worldwide who need prosthetic or orthotic devices. Of the 30 million, it is estimated that about 75% of developing countries do not have a prosthetics orthotics training program, which means patients are left without a means to better their quality of life. The percentages change as more people worldwide become amputees due to traumatic occurrences. These numbers that I just mentioned are estimates from the World Health Organization. Well, my guest today, Dr. Christopher Havorka, is advancing research on treatments using prostheses to enhance the quality of life through better mobility. Chris is also training rehabilitation medical professionals to enhance the lives of people with mobility challenges. Chris is now working at Midwestern University in Arizona and is changing the statistics of the World Health Organization by developing a program which he will talk more about. And I'm excited to hear more about this program and to hear about all of his positive imprints. Chris, welcome to the show. It is so good to have you. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here today. Oh, thank you. And and you have so much that you've given to our community worldwide. You've worked in the United States, but everything you do is global. And right now you're over in Arizona. You really have given yourself to these programs and to, to the community. And thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm happy to share with your audience this area that we call orthotics and prosthetics. It seems that it's becoming more understood today than ever before. In Part 1, Episode 195, Dr. Havorka shared his incredible journey from athlete to athletic trainer to how he is transforming lives worldwide with his research and as a healthcare provider in orthotics and prosthetics. I want to make a greater difference than what I'm doing now in training people to exercise. I think I could do that and make a greater impact in a person's life. So I said, I think I want to be an orthotist prosthetist. 
(laughs) (laughs) So then I went to the local Veterans Administration Center where they had an orthotics and prosthetics facility. And I saw these practitioners that were designing technologies for our our veterans making artificial limbs, prostheses, and braces, orthoses. And these people were walking out of there with smiles on their faces, and there was a lot of gratitude and happiness in the room. And I thought, I'm hooked. This is what I want to do. I re-pivoted my career towards orthotics and prosthetics. I essentially had to start over again with a lot of training, but I was, I was hooked. And that was the start. In part two, Chris shares how he is transforming and influencing change in healthcare by guiding the transition of university healthcare programs to a client-centric approach through training. Yes, it's a topic that's very close to my heart and uh, hopefully can make some positive changes and imprints in the area of orthotics and prosthetics and healthcare for people that require those technologies. So there's this kind of historical continuance of uh, device centrism that still pervades the accreditation standards to inform the school's curricula. So my proposal and what I'm intending to do at uh, where I'm currently at at Midwestern University in Arizona is to get ahead of that. And by looking at the trends in technology and healthcare, they strongly suggest that the use of of technologies can improve clinical efficiencies and replace, in many cases, replace the fabrication component for prosthesis and orthosis. Many of the 3D printing technologies have already shown that the quality of the product that's printed is as good or sometimes better than a handcrafted product. So why not get ahead of this trend and develop a curriculum that trains students to do the traditional handcrafting, which is required for accreditation standards, but really spend more time training students on how to evaluate and appropriately treat a patient that requires these services. I'm essentially aiming to do so as kind of just a balance by spending more time training the students on client-centered approaches to diagnostics, problem-solving, treatment decision-making, and utilizing digital technologies to replace some of these really labor-intensive handcrafting approaches, I believe that we can get there with our curriculum. I've already developed the curriculum, and I'm beginning to make the case to our accrediting body that we can do so. This client-centered training approach that we're creating for the next generation of orthotists and prosthetists, I believe is necessary because it gets at some of the problems that we discussed earlier. One of the problems is if we remain on our current course of device centrism and don't change, that we're going to continue to produce graduates that are going to carry over errors in the care delivery because they're not spending an adequate amount of time with the patient, nor do they have appropriate amount of training to know what to do with the patient to identify their problems and develop an appropriate treatment plan. The other is that it's gonna take the next generation of care providers to develop the body of knowledge to show 
that spending more time with the patient and less time fabricating the device is going to lead to more improved clinical outcomes. And the only way to do that is to engage in scientific studies. And we, we are still lagging as a profession to engage in evidence-based practice that creates substantive change. So I'm proposing that we have a pretty good idea of what the problems are, but we haven't in the past generated solutions to train our next generation. And that's what I'm proposing to do now. And so moving forward, do you see 2023, the curricula will be changed or 2024 or 10 years, 20 years? What do you see as actually being the transition? The best we can do as a profession and as individuals is to pay very close attention to current past and current trends. And then based on that knowledge, we can prognosticate and estimate how to position ourselves for the future. In my prior experiences looking at the future of the profession of orthotics and prosthetics, I happened to guess correctly about 20 years ago where I thought about this notion that we as a profession are going to need to train the next generation of providers to engage in science. So I had had this notion of starting a program at a school where I was at Georgia Tech at the time. And we capitalized on the scientific resources that are available at Georgia Tech to train orthotist prosthetist practitioners to engage in science. At that time, it was sort of a new concept known as evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. And the graduates out of that program ended up, several of them ended up becoming leaders in the profession where they were the heads of research agencies and the heads of clinics and other medical centers where they could implement these ideas that we had proposed at the Georgia Tech program. So we had a little bit of insights looking at the prior trends uh, before we started that program, and they suggested a need to create evidence-based practitioners, which we today call clinician scholars. The profession, however, was fairly slow to respond to that. And it took writing a couple of papers and advocating at a national level to encourage a national change by upgrading all of the degree programs in orthotics and prosthetics from what they called a baccalaureate or post-baccalaureate certificate to one clear degree, which was the master's degree. That was eventually decided upon and agreed upon at a national level after we graduated our first class, but it took about five or six years to create a national standard requirement for all future graduates to come into the profession with a minimum of a master's degree. So the point I'm trying to share with you is we had some insights based on past and current trends that informed this space practitioner of the future and a curriculum that we created. And then as we produced graduates and they began to show their skills and capabilities, the profession gradually came around and said, yeah, I think we need to do this. We need to upgrade to the master's level. And that took about five or seven years to do so. The patients of today 
more than ever have more complicated conditions and disease processes than ever before in the history of medicine. If you look at the if you look at the number of people that have more than three conditions, comorbidities, 20 years ago, they call this a phenomenon of multimorbidity, having three or more medical conditions. If you look at patients that were treated in US healthcare 20, 30 years ago, the number of those individuals that had multimorbidities was way less than 50%. If you now fast forward to today, the number of people that are undergoing care and specifically care in orthotics and prosthetics, by far the majority of them, probably much greater than 60%, have multimorbidity phenomena. So in other words, if I was a practitioner treating a patient 20, 30 years ago, they may have only one or two medical conditions that are not that weren't that complex. They were still very profound, but they weren't that complex. And they could be treated by a person with maybe a little less knowledge in medicine and physiology. Well, that's no longer the case today. Fast forward to today, people have multiple medical conditions. They're receiving multiple medications or other types of overlapping treatments, some of which are counterproductive. And so the clinician today has to unravel that complexity to understand uh, how to what are the most important problems and how to mitigate all those other problems that the individual has. So it's no longer a luxury to have additional knowledge in medicine and physiology. It's a necessity in order to appropriately deliver informed care. So we need as a profession to replace some of these manufacturing inefficiencies with digital 3D manufacturing efficiencies so that we can use that same time, that saved time and efficiencies in manufacture to spend more of it with the patient and really get at a deeper understanding of their medical problems and how to treat them. In some cases, that might require some additional research. And so this trade-off between utilizing and uh, capitalizing on these digital technologies and AI-informed manufacturing processes, that will enable us to, as a profession to deliver more appropriate client-centered care, which is a requirement for managing people with multimorbidity. Wow. And that all makes sense. Words put everything you said into a really awesome perspective, and that is appropriate care. When you look at healthcare, healthcare and changes in healthcare are largely influenced by technology. There's an interplay between technology and healthcare. The onset of the computer changed practice and how, how decisions are made and how paperwork and documentation is done. If you look at the technology of devices that people use, like prostheses and orthoses, particularly with the area back again in computers, like machine learning and artificial intelligence, scanning devices that can render shapes virtually for people's body segments. There are ways now where we can produce and manufacture a device like an orthosis or prosthesis 
virtually through scanning, surface scanning equipment to render a shape of a body part. We can alter that shape and then we can manufacture it through 3D printing. We can print it through using metals, through 3D printing metal structures. We have plastic structures. We have carbon composite structures. We can print. I'm not saying just because we can that we should, not always, but we have technologies when used appropriately to create devices in a more efficient and effective manner. When a provider like myself can utilize technologies to produce devices with greater efficiencies, we have time savings. I don't have to make some of these devices by hand, which are rather time consuming, and I can't create something by hand exactly the same every time. I'm not reliable, whereas certain technologies, you can create the same device or same piece of equipment the same every time. There's some value to that. But where, I, where I'm going with this, Catherine, is with the existing and likely future technologies that are coming on the market for device design and production, I can create those technologies more quickly, more efficiently, and in some cases, less expensively, cost-wise. That time savings can be then used with more face time with the person. I can get a better understanding of the client that I'm working with, get a better understanding of their goals, their needs, and spend more time fitting and ensuring that the device is appropriate and safe. That to me is a game changer because it broadcasts to me that we can now become technology managers and client-centered practitioners where we can work with the client or the patient. Let's use an example here. A person comes to me because they have acquired a lower limb amputation because of a car crash. They lost their limb due to a traumatic injury, and now they're seeing me because they are in need of a replacement artificial limb. I can now spend more time with that person getting to know their goals, their desires, and their medical situation. They may have other conditions like diabetes, heart disease on top of that limb loss that need very specific attention and a specific designed device to enable them to move safely and effectively and not hurt themselves. I can spend more time to not miss those critical details in a person's medical history that will further inform the plan of care so that I make less errors. And because of that, I can only do that now because the technologies available are more efficient and effective for device design and production. Now, let's take that to not just a local level, let's now take that to a global level. Again, with digital technologies, such as the, the mode that we're using through a, a digital platform, I can see you, you can see me. I can communicate and work with a team of other care providers on the other side of the world. I can see the patient using a handheld camera, even a phone, or I could do it with a whole team of care providers. And we can consult together 
and we can do education and training together. So we can not only take our training program that we're putting together here in Arizona, but we can also create care and educator extenders to people in, in, in other countries, other parts of the world. So that's one of our goals is to not only do local training for students in the United States that come to our program, but that we also give back to other communities in less advantaged parts of the world and help train native local providers to deliver care. And I think that model tends to be more effective rather than me coming with my own team. We parachute into the community we deliver our own set of care, and then we leave. That obviously, that model of coming in, which is very well-intentioned, but if we don't train the local providers, it's not sustainable. It actually does more of a disservice than an appropriate service if you don't train the local providers. So today, we're looking at that future of the transition in proposing strategies for academia to prepare this generation of professionals to evolve and value the care. Yeah, it's important to provide a little bit of background on uh, the profession itself and the need for change. If you look at the orthotics and prosthetics profession, it's one of the few healthcare professions that a medical device is provided and utilized by a person, in some cases, for the rest of their life. It's very visual. In many cases, it's, it's really hard to obscure the device. It's out there. So I'm just bringing up our first point of the discussion is that this profession, orthotics and prosthetics, is unique in that it's providing a device that's very visual. And that brings up a lot of interesting factors in terms of compliance and desire to use the technology by the patient. The other part that's even more relevant to our discussion in the background is the, the roots of the profession. And that is that the profession started as a crafts and artisan trade. The profession was rooted where persons designed devices by hand. Almost every part was customized. And to that particular individual, whether it was a brace, whether it was a prosthesis, most of the early practitioners, we called them technicians back then, they were very skilled artisans, but not necessarily clinical care providers. That context is important because in professions that are very skill-based, there is a stereotype of not wanting to share. When I started in the profession 30 years ago, which was still very handcraft oriented, and there were very little commercially available parts, I had to make a lot of things myself. And I noticed as I entered the profession, there was this culture of not sharing information. It was this notion of let's just keep the information to ourselves and not share. It was a barrier to advancement in methods and techniques of how we provide care. The other part that's important to the discussion about it, why a change, is that with the onset of digital technologies, computer technologies, that really advanced the technology creation. So in other words, 30 years ago, 
as a practitioner, I would design and create a lot of the parts for a device myself for the patient. And about maybe 15, 20 years ago, we could now create commercially available orthotic and prosthetic products that we could never do before. Another part is that the reimbursement for orthotic and prosthetic care is going down. It's oh. not going up for various reasons, one of which is the medical and healthcare system is very expensive in the United States. And national decision makers at the national level are trying to find ways to reduce costs. So orthotics and prosthetics is, is affected through cost-cutting measures by reducing reimbursement. Okay, so what does this mean? We have a profession that has a tradition of hand crafting. We have this reduction in reimbursement, and we have new technologies that are replacing hand crafting. Well, this now offers a lot more opportunity for change in, and, and to perhaps improve care through change. And let me give you an example. There are some prosthetic orthotic devices that are too complex to 3D print. And in those cases, they still need to be handcrafted. But the majority of devices, I believe, the technology is now shown, can be 3D printed. So that's the strategy. Capitalize on digital technologies to improve efficiencies in the manufacturing of prosthetic orthotic devices. And the time savings can then be spent by the practitioner with the patient. Why is it that these financial efficiencies have to come on the responsibility of the practitioners? When costs start to be cut at the practitioner's level, what are we losing as a medical client? Yes, great question. Uh, so, so to answer that question kind of relates to the history of the profession based as a technical trade. As the profession advanced towards a clinical practice and less of a technical trade, one of the things that didn't evolve with it was the reimbursement system. So the current reimbursement system in orthotics and prosthetics has not changed since it was formulated decades ago. And that is that the, the care provision is solely anchored to the device. In other words, as a clinical practitioner, if I was to see you as a patient, all the time that I spend with you to get to know you, to understand your needs and goals, and to develop a plan, that's not considered part of the device, and I can't bill for it. I can only bill for the product that I provide to you. It's called a durable medical equipment uh, reimbursement plan through the federal government. And until our profession can, can show an appropriate amount of evidence to overturn that oh. and show that, it, that there's an improvement in care that can be provided through spending more time with the patient, then we will remain a durable medical equipment provider only. So it's a conundrum. Chris explains the client-centric training approach. This client-centered care approach, which is part of our model, 
we're adopting some principles that were very successful with that approach in Europe and Canada. I've formulated the curriculum. I've written some position papers to help my colleagues in academia and in clinical care in the United States understand our approach. And that's strategic because I, I need to help engage in some open discussion of this approach so that I can begin to identify and recruit supporters. When you're proposing something new, there are people that are nervous or not comfortable. And sometimes that discomfort can come out as anger or frustration. It, it takes many different behavioral forms. And my approach is to be patient, to be open, to have some discussion and not discount other individuals' views. And so there's going to be a period, I guess what I'm saying is I'm preparing for resistance as I begin to unfold and unveil our model. The client or the person, in some cases, they're the expert. They're the expert of themselves. They're the ones in most cases that know themselves better than anybody else. So it's taken me a while to figure that out. It's kind of intuitive and obvious, but sometimes we get caught in the weeds. I'm a victim of that too. But I've learned now that by engaging in open discussion and establishing rapport with a person so that they feel comfortable to have honest and truthful conversation with another like myself as a care provider, as long as I can get to the truth of what the person wants and desires, and also, on the other hand, to get to the truth of what's not appropriate, what's overreaching, in many cases, that's, that's a problem where there's not this honest discussion about, okay, we can do this for you, but you know this other thing that you want, we probably need to talk a little bit more about reeling in and making that goal more achievable. If you don't drill into that honest discussion with a person, the goal may not be achievable. And then the treatment plan is overreaching and it can be a big error. So this client-centered approach and the practitioner understanding the value of the person, just reoriented, you know, that the person is part of the plan of care, they participate. That's a critical element to this new, this new approach of client-centered practice. I applaud you for that. And Dr. Michael Gerhardt from Germany, whom I had on the show, he said, and I love this quote and I use it often, let's try to get it right instead of trying to be right. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You're trying to get it right. I've seen persons who may or, or may perhaps not be as physically capable as I am and seeing the challenges that they have to face in their world on a day-to-day -day basis and what they're still capable of doing and the attitudes that they have. It's inspiring for me. It's hard to not be positive and grateful for what I have. So I'm inspired and that's what makes it relatively easy for me to, to take the positive approach. So Chris, with all of the work that you've done and all of the patients you've worked with, can you tell us about one of the most inspiring times that you had with a person that you fitted with the device and you were just so thrilled with the mobility that that person had in achieving a better quality of life. Yes, the handful of people, but one person that really stood out to me 
is I was practicing many years ago on the East Coast up in the up in New England. And I was referred to a person who had a condition that it was this, it was a rather unusual case. She was very outdoors oriented and she was hiking in the woods up in Massachusetts, I believe. And she fell and cut her leg on a fallen tree. While the fallen tree had been undergoing decay, and when she cut her leg, unbeknownst to her, after she cleaned the wound out in the field, it became infected. And she acquired a, a condition called meningococcemia, which is just a fancy word that she had, a, she had a, an infection that went systemic. It went not only localized in her leg, but it went throughout other parts of her body. And this particular infection is vicious because one of its effects is it kills certain types of tissues. And so essentially, her body's immune system was causing decay of what used to be viable tissues in her extremities, her hands and her feet. And as part of a life-saving maneuver so that this infection wouldn't overcome vital organs and she would eventually die, the, the surgical team had to amputate all four of her limbs at different levels. In one, one limb, she was amputated above the knee, another limb, she was amputated below the knee, and both upper extremities, she lost her hands. So all four extremities, she had varying levels of limb loss. And this woman, by the way, was in her early 20s. She had her whole life ahead of her, bright, very, very ambitious, happened to be physically very attractive. She was a former model. So imagine a former model, youngish 20-something, life ahead of her is now disfigured. And I should add that this particular condition also causes extensive scarring so she had scars on her neck and part of her face. So this was obviously life-altering medical event. And I think any, any typical person that would likely encounter that would be devastated. I mean, that could be, it, it would be so easy to fall into a, a deep depression and it would be difficult to, to become motivated. Like, how do you recalibrate your life after all that, you don't, anyway, so I'm kind of getting to the point that it was difficult. Well, when I saw her for, for the very first time, she was so grateful to be alive. She had a lot of life in her and she was only looking to the future. So I was impressed and kind of taken aback by how positive and hopeful she was despite these potential limitations. And she motivated me <laughs> to become a more, I wanted to be the best I could be. I mean, my, I felt a, a, a profound responsibility to not let her down. So she motivated me and helped me up my game just with her own attitude and behavior. It was so inspiring. And I ended up working with a team of, of other orthotists and prosthetists and physicians. It wasn't me alone. I was part of a team 
to provide these devices to her. And then we also worked with another group of therapists to help her train and adapt and learn to cope with her new lifestyle with these technologies. And I would see her occasionally for adjustments and follow-ups. And every time I saw her, she was just engaged in more and more activities. She ended up going on to get a master's degree in social work. Her goal was to help people and, and to help utilize resources to enable people to get through their challenges of their life. And she ended up also becoming an advocate for people with limb loss, a spokesperson. And today she's now a national figure. So she was one of my most inspiring stories based on the, the number of challenges she had ahead of her. And she overcame and excelled. She found her own, her own positive imprint and, and excelled at it. It was really, really cool. That is such a great story. And I'm so happy for, for you that you were inspired to become the better Chris and, and to go beyond what you thought you ever could. And of course, for her, so, so inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow. Wow. So, well, with that, your work is, again, the extensiveness, because it, it doesn't end with just a model of a program. It's not going to end because it's a continuing process of researching these treatments and researching how to provide a better quality of life for people in, who have movement limitations. And of course, training the professionals in rehabilitation medicine. Chris, this has been extremely inspirational, and I am truly inspired by your work and the fact that you started your work at such a young age by being inspired by others who had some sort of movement limitation. And I truly applaud you for sticking to your journey and really realizing that there was not just a future for you as far as work goes, but a future for you implementing the needs, implementing for the needs of people around the world to better their lives and to bring them a better quality of life through your research on prosthetic treatments and orthotics. And of course, training of professionals in rehab and medicine. So I thank you so much. So to end today, Chris, and you have been inspiring, what are your last inspiring words you would like to share? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, I guess a couple uh, that I've learned along the way, which have really helped to inform me and my attitude. And that is, I found that when I stay curious and, and I have a lot of wonder that that's really a spark to not just learning more, but engaging more. And I found that being curious and wondering has just opened up so many doors and new thoughts and frontiers for me that has just been really remarkable. Uh, so curiosity has been a big part of what I do and how I do it. And I would encourage your listeners to, to also uh, be curious 
And it's okay to ask questions or to wonder. And in many cases, it, it engages a discussion or an understanding of another viewpoint. It opens up your mind to consider alternatives and challenges. And so that's been a really guiding principle for me. And then the other part that I'd like to share with your listeners, and it kind of goes along with the Be Curious. I've not just adopted these on my own. These were principles that were devised and decided by, by really smart people before me. And one of those smart people before me was Einstein. I don't know the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, if you're not learning, you're dying. But I would tweak that just a little bit because you can learn in a lot of ways, but it may not necessarily be favorable or it may be damaging to your psyche or your behavior. So I tweaked the statement and I adopted a revised version of that statement, which is if you're not learning and having fun, you're dying. There you go. Chris, thank you so much for engaging in science. You bet. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I can tell. Thank you for the contributions. <laughs> Learn more about Chris Havorka and his research by going to midwestern.edu. And you might find this article interesting, The Orthotics and Prosthetics Edge, March 22, on guiding the transition to client-centric training. Something you can Google. And you know, really, the need to move on to this is so imperative. Thank you to Chris again for pushing this to an international level. To find his peer-reviewed research and articles, just Google Chris Havorka, C-H-R-I-S-H-O-V-O-R-K-A, or Google client-centric approaches. And don't forget to follow, subscribe, or download this podcast. This is a free podcast. But if you'd like to donate to the production of this variety show, you may do so by going to paypal.me backslash your positive imprint. And don't forget to leave positive reviews from your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much for that support. And thank you for listening. See you in February with more exciting positive imprints. Until then, safe journeys. Your positive imprint. What's your PI?